This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. It's Friday, January 26, 2024. Hope that you're having a great day. I am Santita Jackson coming to you from WCPT 820, the nation's largest graphic radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of Progressive Minnesota. Let's talk about parenthood and genocide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we're seeing in Gaza. But, you know, the same charge has been made against the United States with regard to indigenous people, with regard to black people. And we need to talk about how that shapes parenting, how it shapes mothers and fathers. Um, You have to remember the book by Toni Morrison, Beloved, in which she killed her child. It was reminiscent of the Negro spiritual, before I will be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. And the mother's thinking was, I will not let my child live this kind of life. I will send you home to be with God before I let you experience the indignities and the cruelties of slavery. And that is what's happening in Gaza right now. Indeed, uh, we are waiting to hear what the world court is going to say about South Africa's charge of genocide against Israel. So we'll be talking about that at the end of the show today, but we're going to talk about Parenthood and Genocide. It's a tremendous article in In These Times magazine. And how does genocide, how does, well, two-thirds of the people killed in Gaza have been women and children. Now, you know more, you're not supposed to touch women, you're not supposed to touch children, but they have been specifically targeted, ending a new generation. People have said that that has been happening to black people ever since we got here. We were encouraged to have children in slavery, but discouraged once we got out of slavery to keep our numbers down. There's something called the Mississippi appendectomy. Black women through the 60s and even into the 80s would go in to see their gynecologist just for an exam, and they come back sterilized. It was called the Mississippi, it is called the Mississippi appendectomy. So let's talk about that today. What are the connections? What is the intersectionality? And how do we stop this cruelty? to mothers and fathers and families. How can we stop it? Uh, So let's get right to it, everybody. I'm Santita Jackson. It is a joy to be with you today. Let's get to some of these headlines. Alabama carried out the world's first known execution with nitrogen gas. Kenneth Eugene Smith, convicted in a 1988 contract killing, was put to death last night despite concerns that this untested method could cause pain. And why was nitrogen gas used? Because states have botched lethal injections and struggled to obtain drugs for them. Alabama is one of three states to approve this as an alternative in death penalty cases. Donald Trump briefly testified in his civil defamation trial yesterday. A visibly angry Donald Trump, former President Trump, uh, took the witness stand in a New York federal court, spoke for a few minutes, then walked out in a half, according to this Washington Post report. It will determine, this trial will determine whether the former president owes additional damages to writer E. Jean Carroll, who says Trump defamed her after sexually abusing her. 
The UN's top court is set to rule on ordering Israel to halt fighting in Gaza. The International Court of Justice will decide on South Africa's request that the court order Israel to suspend its devastating military campaign in Gaza. A ruling against Israel could increase pressure on it to agree to a ceasefire. It's part of a case accusing Israel of committing genocide. More than 25,000 Gazans have been killed since October 7th. Half of American renters spend more than 30% of their income on housing, a new study found. That's a key benchmark for affordability. Rent remains the nation's main driver of inflation. Other causes of rising prices have improved, but rent is still taking up a bigger share of people's budgets. Mm, What do you think about that, everybody? Is that happening to you? Thick fog blanketed much of the country this week with this hot and cold air meeting, everybody. Parts of 27 states were under dense fog advisories yesterday. Here in Chicago, Mississippi, Louisiana, Missouri, Iowa, Indiana, Tennessee, 27 states, everybody. How have you been getting around? It has been tough. It has been tough. So everybody, please be careful as you travel about because it really, really is kind of dangerous out there. It's kind of dangerous. So I want you to call me at 773-763-9278. Let's talk about genocide and parenting. In Chicago, we're going to have a high of 30 Six degrees, rain and a mixture of rain and snow. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 39 degrees, cloudy. We cannot wait to see who's going to seize the AFC and the NFC championships in football this weekend. But in the meantime, the Bulls, well, they fell to the Lakers. Lakers 141, the Bulls 132. And... The Timberwolves eked one out over the Nets, 96-94 in the NHL. Uh, the Oilers shut out Chicago, 3 to nothing, and the Predators were triumphant over the Wild, 3-2. to We've got Pastor Tisha Dixon-Williams, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Bridgehampton, New York, author of the book, I See You, Sis, and she gave us a word last week at New Covenant. Missionary Baptist Church that everybody is still talking about. I urge you to go to their website so you can see and hear this great word on what it means to be a supportive partner, what it means to be someone who supports. So as we pivot out of you, so let's pull that music off. Let's go to Pastor Tisha Dixon-Williams. Pastor Tisha Dixon-Williams, it was wonderful seeing you last week. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? It's a typical New York morning this morning. Oh, <laughs> so my I'm going to apologize I mean, it's only- in, in advance for any any ambulance, sirens, street activity you may hear on this call. But morning. it's about 60 degrees there, right? Uh, this morning, yes. It's Right now it's 46 degrees. It was 60 degrees yes. yesterday. Yes. That is crazy. <laughs> After having been 19 degrees. So go figure. Go well, figure. you know what? I can't figure, so I'm just going to go on and, and, and go on with it because a friend of mine was swatting at, what did he say? He was swatting at uh, mosquitoes yesterday when he was playing with his daughter in the park yesterday. I said, you what? Oh, he my said, word. 60 degrees here. I said, I'm not ready well, for that. No, not at all. And, you know, the earth, earth has a fever. So, yeah. 
strange things happen when we're feverish. <laughs> well, now there you go. These are not. There you go. <laughs> these, these are not ordinary times, are they? Dion, these are not ordinary times. These are unprecedented times that we are doing our best to navigate through. Mm-hmm. For What's sure. Well, what is the good news for us today? Well, first of all, wait a minute. Before we get into that, you are hosting a conference today? I am hosting a conference for the next few, few days. We, we kicked off last night. It's called Groundwork. It's a preaching conference, obviously, for preachers and pastors and those in the clergy space. And last night we kicked it off with a great event called Jesus Jazz and Jeans. And it was mm. phenomenal. We had a jazz trio and a music historian share with us last night, and it was just fantastic. And so this morning we're doing the work. Uh, so we're going to have a wonderful word by Dr. Jerry Carter. We're going to have teaching by Pastor Aker and uh, so, so much more. So we're, gonna, we're having a great time. And, uh, yeah, and then tomorrow we uh, have myself teaching and more great preaching with Dr. Danielle Brown. So it's going to be a fantastic two days. Well, I am excited about that. Let us know when, if we can hear any of those words, because we need all of the words of, of wisdom and inspiration that we can get. Yes, we'll package it and make it uh, available for everybody online, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, please yeah. do. Please do. What's on your mind today? Yeah. So today I want to talk about how to handle the unexpected. You know, life throws us curveballs sometimes. <laughs> you wake up in the morning, you expect one thing to happen and something totally different. You have everything in your day planned booked out, footnoted, and then all of a sudden something comes and throws you a curveball, but not just your day. In our lives, we're throwing curveballs all the time. And how do we do that? Because handling unexpected, handling the unexpected is an essential skill, but it doesn't vary only um, benefit us in the moment. It benefits us throughout all aspects of life, in our work, in our personal relationships, everyday situations. And what we know is unexpected events are inevitable. We could not avoid them if we tried. And so what I want to provide you today with is some tips on how we handle the unexpected. The first thing we have to do is embrace the unexpected. <laughs> you know, I used to work for someone, and people used to ask me all the time, we don't understand how you work for him. He's just so inconsistent. You never know what you're going to get. And you know what I would say? I would say, but he's consistent in his inconsistencies. And so because I know <laughs> that inconsistency is consistent, I can prepare myself for inconsistency, and that's how life is. But the first thing that we have to understand is that things are going to happen. Something's going to go awry. We ought to expect the unexpected so it just doesn't sweep us off our feet every time it happens. And in doing so, what we do is we develop a growth mindset. The other thing is stay calm. Maintain your composure. Take a moment, pause, take a deep breath, avoid reacting impulsively or emotionally. You know, that text message that comes through that throws you for a world, take a moment, take a beat, take a step back, take a deep breath, and then respond. Because one thing we know is you can't put toothpaste back in the tube. Once it comes out, that's mm. it. You won't be able to bring it back. And then when you do that, what it does is it allows you to assess the situation. You can look at it objectively. You can identify the potential 
potential risks or challenges or rewards in that moment. Because here's the thing. Sometimes a shift is not a negative thing. Sometimes a shift or the unexpected could be in our best interest. You never know. Some of the greatest inventions happen because there was a mistake, because there was an error, because it's like, oh, I didn't know that this would work for this. So maybe embrace the idea that your way may not be the only way, and perhaps the shift, the change, the unexpected activity is exactly what you needed. And then what you do, you do what the Marines say. You adapt and adjust. (laughs) You adapt and you overcome. You shift yourself to accommodate this change. Accept that the plans may need to change. Be flexible. Brainstorm an alternative. Be open to new ideas and willing to make the necessary changes. We can learn from this experience. We can learn when life throws you a curveball. And I have come to find out that as a preacher and a pastor, you don't know what you're capable of until you're thrown in the fire at the last minute. You may just surprise yourself. So on this Friday morning, well, I'm sure it's already a freaky Friday for some of you, and the day is already mm. turning out to be what you not did not expect. I'm telling you to keep your mind open, keep your heart open, adjust, adapt, take a deep breath. Everything's going to be all right. And that's how you handle the unexpected. I love it. I love it. I've had a lot of that over the past few months. And you know what? I'm seeing the blessings. I'm like, no, you know, yes. I, I, need, I need to do something else. Didn't realize it. Yes. I needed to get rid of half of these clothes. I needed yes. to do this. Oh, my gosh. Wait a minute. I was holding on to some things that I needed to release. So thank you mm-hmm. for that. Yeah. Thank of you course, for that. Thank how, you. How can we worship with you? Oh, my goodness. How can we be with you? You can be with me virtually or in person at the First Baptist Church of Bridgehampton in Bridgehampton, New York. If you want to join us virtually, you can join us via YouTube at First Baptist Church of Bridgehampton on YouTube. Make sure to like, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and you don't miss any of so you don't miss any of our worship experiences. <laughs> I love it, and I love you. Pastor Tisha Dixon and, I love and have a wonderful time. Oh my gosh. You and too. Me that Thank address. you so much. I'll <laughs> tell you that address. I will absolutely. <laughs> oh, we'll lady. Have Thank a wonderful you, everyone. time. Have my love day. to all of our sister pastors, please. You, yes, yes, for sure. And your buddy's here too, so. <laughs> oh, you know. Yeah. Get my baby, my love. I will. He's presenting on. He's presenting tomorrow, so it wouldn't be a conference without him. <laughs> Honey, and without without a bunch of beautiful women. So there we go. I'm not mad yes, at him. Yes, ma'am. Oh yes. Oh yes. Ma'am. All right. Great. I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I mean, intelligent right. women. Because he absolutely encourages yes. that, Pastor Stephen Thurston, of course, and he'll be on Facebook today at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time. Sending you so much love today. Right back to you, Santa. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Absolutely. You too. Dr. Shanina Knight, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I am doing fine. What's on your mind? Because I did have a question for you that um, something, an article that, something that's been on my mind, but I guess this article confirmed something for me that just, that's disturbing. But you tell me first what's on your mind today. 
Um, let's talk about what you want to talk about, so that way we have enough time. Among the wealthy nations, the poorest health outcomes are by Americans. We're the unhealthiest wealthy nation. Why is that? There are a numerous amount of reasons, and I mean, a lot. So we could talk about food being one of those things, meaning that in other countries, certain ingredients, certain processes are banned when it comes to preparing food, that our scientific discoveries have shown us is directly attached to chronic conditions such as diabetes, such as high blood pressure, such as cancers. We know that certain foods that are consumed and certain ingredients specifically in those foods are attached to that. We can also talk about the fact that when we look at our water, when we look at some of the resources that we use, the chemicals that are absorbed through the skin or consumed or ingested. With our water, we're dealing with microplastics. We're dealing with, you know, inappropriate dumping and contamination of our water. So that has been an issue. When we're talking about, you know, the absorption of skin, the lotions, um, let's say whether it's eye drops, whether it's soaps, there are, again, harmful ingredients that are allowed to be put into these items that are then not good for us. So I've given those three examples. But then we talk about our healthcare system. So we have some of the most sophisticated technology, yet we don't look at health holistically. We treat disease instead of focus on prevention, meaning that as we think about all of the world's drug supply, we are the ones that unfortunately use the most. The United States is responsible for 60% of use of all pharmaceutical drugs of the entire world. So we're talking 60%? about 330 Sixty percent. So out of three hundred and out of eight point seven billion people, the three hundred and thirty million people that reside in the United States is responsible for sixty percent of drugs that are used, including what are we opioids, which is well, opioids. Think about it like this: you might go in, right, and you might say, "My stomach is aching." They might then give you one medication and say, "Oh, this is to treat the nausea and vomiting." But then it's the side effects of the nausea and vomiting medicine. So we need to give you this medicine, but it's going to cause dry eyes. So you need to then take some uh, eye drops. Okay, but then the eye drops is going to cause your nose to run. So let's then now give you antihistamine. The antihistamine is going to cause dehydration. So let me give you something to address your electrolytes. Oh, if your electrolytes is adjusted too much, then you probably need to take this or eat that. And that is just the reality that we're living in, whether we choose to recognize that or not, that, yes, while innovation is great, while the discovery of drugs are great, unfortunately, instead of thinking about implementing things all the time, we should think about what is de-implementing, meaning what can we take away that is unnecessary 
that we have done that has led to things being overkill. Speaking of overkill, we talk about all of these drugs and the fact that if you go to the doctor and get medications and you just so happen to have an ER visit because the systems don't talk, you may have a double or triple amount of the same medications within your home, which then can lead to misuse by teens, misuse by other adults, childhood poisoning, and so many other things. The other piece is, is within these medicines, yes, antipsychotics may very well help, but the side effects of some of these medications are suicides alone. So then we have to think about the guns, okay, that are then killing people because of those issues, but also because of others, because there's just people-on-people crime. There's black-on-black crime, which unfortunately is a thing. And then we look at our situation when it comes to poverty. Poverty in itself is directly attached to poor health outcomes. If you do not have the basics of life met, we're talking about food, shelter, water, and security, then that being in danger in itself then puts you at risk for having poor health outcomes and automatically is going to lower your life expectancy. When we are thinking about the stressors of being without insurance, the stressors of being without housing, the stresses of not being able to have sufficient water, where we understand water safety, unfortunately, is a, is a thing. Air quality safety is a thing. So while I would like to give one symptom and say this is one problem that we need to fix, unfortunately, we need to be thinking about a lot more instead of the priorities, unfortunately, that have been at the forefront of our brains such as wars, when literally we have people that are over here dying. And so when we talk about that, I laugh because it was a political obituary, you know, right there. But unfortunately, we are the sickest because we're not taking care of the things that are important, opposed to focusing on the things that do not matter. Think about that, everybody. And remember, white-on-white crime is a thing because crimes are interracial. You kill the people whom you know. More than 80% of whites are killed by the whites. 90% of blacks are killed by the blacks. It shakes out to about 85%. We kill people because we're near them. And we kill people because we have a killing culture. we got to look at that, too. And it's playing itself out in a multitude of ways. When we had headaches, which we did growing up, my mother made us sit down. She said, no, this is a sign you need to be quiet. We don't do that. Think about that. Dr. Janina Knight and everybody. Hey, Dr. Nina, H-E-Y-D-R-N-I-N-A, H-E-Y-D-R-N-I-N-A. Keep in touch with her, and let's, um, let's get healthy, y'all. Let's do that. Let's talk about parenthood and genocide. Yeah, that's a real issue, real issue. As we look at Gaza, as we look at the United States, as we look at wherever people are living under the boot. Hmm, let's talk about it. As we await of the International Criminal Court, the highest court in the UN, what are they going to say about South Africa charging Israel with genocide? What will they do? 
How will they rule? Back in just a minute on the Santita Jackson Show. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. Uh, today, we await what the International Criminal Court will say about South African char- South Africa charging Israel with genocide. Paul Robeson, 70 years ago, along with other prominent African-Americans and progressives, went to the U.N. and charged the United States with genocide of African-Americans. Indeed, uh, America has been charged with the genocide of indigenous people. This is not something that is alien to us. It's a conversation that we do not want to have. But when two-thirds of the persons who are killed in Gaza are women and children, when conventionally in war you don't touch women and children, we have to ask the question about parenthood and genocide. As we watch fathers carrying their dead children out of these buildings just in shock, what do we do about that? As we watch women having to uh, say goodbye to their beloved children who are in the ICU. As we're watching a generation of Gazans, of Palestinians eliminated, what about parenthood and, and genocide? Let's talk about that on the Santita Jackson Show. It's a wonderful, wonderful piece in In These Times magazine, Parenthood and Genocide. It doesn't seem like they should go together, but they are married to one another in this moment, and we need to talk about that today on the Santita Jackson Show. And we've got a tremendous panel, and I want to talk with you about it, too, because many women who are listening to us today, many fathers who are listening to us today, say, no, we have to charge the United States with genocide. We have to understand genocide for what it is and end it for all time, wherever we are, on parenthood and genocide. And so I want to welcome this panel to our show today. We have Stephanie Fox, the Executive Director of Jewish Voice for Peace, Attorney Lena O'Day, who is the Executive Director of the First Defense Legal Aid and founding member of Ella's Daughters, which is a Palestinian feminist collective. Uh, we have Lisa Snowden McRae from one of my favorite cities on earth, Baltimore. My college roommate was from there. We used to have a great time in Baltimore when I was at Howard University. She's the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Baltimore Beat, which she's written for Essence and the Washington Post and Baltimore Magazine. And uh, Heather Goyed, Associate Professor of Sociology at the City University of New York at Hunter College, author of Refuge. She's working on her second book, The Cost of Borders. But let's start with parenthood and genocide. It almost gives you whiplash, Heather, when you see mm-hmm. the title. I mean, because it's like wait, parenthood and genocide, that's... They're not supposed to go together. You're supposed to be excited mm-hmm. about parenthood, and and you're anticipating uh, the birth of your child. You're anticipating all of these things. And I remember I got very ill. I became very ill a few years ago. And another one of my siblings was ill when he was a child. And my father said to me, 
I said, well, you know, we can wait a few months and we can take care of this. He said, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm not burying any children. <laughs> I didn't come mm. this far to do, to do that. Mm. So that I'm not going to do. It's unnatural for a parent to bury their child. It's unnatural. Unnatural. And in war, Absolutely. you do not touch women and children. But they're the ones who are being targeted here. Heather, talk to me. Parenthood and genocide. What is the point of your piece? And what is happening in Gaza? You know, anytime there's a genocide, it's parenthood and genocide, right? And it's very easy to forget when we look at large numbers, when we look at people being killed, when people are being racialized, minoritized, discriminated against, lumped into groups. It's very easy to forget that every person killed is somebody's child. Um, and, you know, this, this piece came out of a very personal experience. I became a mother about six months ago. Um, and, you know, I, I went through the late nights, the sleep deprivation, um, the doting, the worried about every sniffle. And I recognized, um, and at the same time, you know, we were watching this genocide unfold in Gaza. We're watching tens of thousands of people. Um, you know, right now it's about the, the number is close to 26, some say 30,000 people who are dead um, and and consistently you know a third of those uh, have been children uh, and and there's images people who look like my child there's there's I looked at an early list of the dead and there were seven hebas right seven people with my own name seven women in their 30s who are dead um, and I just it, it, it hit me that being a parent gave me a very different kind of uh, physical sense of, you know, of, of what it would mean. Um, and, and, and of course, we, we, we can't know, right? But the extent of the loss that these parents are suffering, and I know the extent of the loss the parents are suffering because of the extent of the love I have for my child. Um, and, it, and it makes me wonder how anybody, anybody can watch this go down. Anybody can watch somebody lose their baby unfairly, unjustly, with, you know, belligerent bombs from the sky and not stop to say, hey, you know, wh what's happening here, right? Why, why are we expending Children, li children's lives at this at this rate. Why are we breaking people's hearts in this way? Why are we destroying people's futures in this way? Um, and and it really it's a dimension of the genocide, you know that that I think we don't talk about often enough because we end up talking about children's deaths in aggregate, um, you know, in thousands. Um, but everybody's somebody's baby. Mm -hmm. Everybody. Well, you know, and Palestinians. They're dead, but Israelis are killed. You know, it's just, right. we have to watch that subtle language. And right. do you think that, you know, Mother's Day originally was Mother's Day for Peace? You know, it was a call for all women of every particular, of every conceivable background after the horror, the carnage of the Civil War in the United States uh, to stop war everywhere. I mean, the call was for women to step forward because the expression has always been that if, if you give birth to a child, you never send your child off to war. You protect your child and every other child with all your might. Women in the United States took care of Union and, um, and Confederate soldiers. Because they said, I hope that if you catch my Confederate child on the, in the North, you'll take care of them. I hope if you catch my union child in the South, you'll take care of them. What are we missing here, Heather? I mean, because it seems like we're still not quite 
looking at the the toll that this is taking upon families. When we're watching whole families getting wiped out, whole families. Whole families, multiple generations. You know, what we're missing is that it's, 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 a, it's a story as old as time. It's a story that this, you know, that this country is founded on, right? It's a story of racism. It's a story of some people feeling that their children are children and other people's children are, you know, not as important. Other people's children are being used as human shields, which is a very racist, very, very racist conceptualization of other people's parenting, right? That they don't love their children because they're not human like us. Um, and I, you know, in the piece I write about Mamie Till, right, I, I think a lot about, um, you know, the black experience in the United States is a corollary because, you know, in, in very similar ways to people in Gaza where, where they're opening their caskets, they're, you know, having, um, you know, uh, journalists follow them around in their moments of intense, intense grief as they are sobbing over the loss of their babies, multiple babies, sometimes their whole families. Um, you know, Mamie Till opened the casket to say, look, look at what you did to my child. You know, look, look at what you did. And the hope is that we're going to shame people. The hope is that, you know, we're going to say, if, if, if we scream loud enough, if we cry hard enough, if they see, if they can see what they're doing, that they're going to somehow, um, you know, get empathy, that they're going to somehow recognize that this is not okay to do. Uh, but the thing is, is that if you don't believe people are human, right, if you don't believe them, um, you know, if you don't believe that they're just like you, if you don't believe that their children are your children, if, if, for, if for decades you've been taught that something else is different, if you're, if you're rooted in a system of supremacy of any sort, um, you know, you're not going to have that empathy and you're going to continue to drop bombs and you're going to find excuses to do it. And so, you know, what we're seeing right now is, is, is uh, a story that, that unfortunately is, is, you know, defines our globe. And I think it's really fitting that we're having this conversation um, as we await uh, the ICJ verdict, um, because it's, you know, it, it, this is, this is sort of the core um, of it all is, is, is the injustice um, and, and the history of, of oppression. Attorney Lena O'Day, I mean, how, what impact do you think this, the ruling can have either way that we're going to get later on today from the United Nations highest court? Good morning, and I'm Good honored morning. to be here, Santita. Um, just to kind of orient myself in what Hiba's talking about and thinking about the multiple generations. Uh, my mother was a delegate for your father when he had the courage to have Palestine on his platform while running for president. Bless your heart. And so thinking about the generations of struggle that we've all been rooted in sure. and how the struggle continues. And so I'm honored to be here this morning and honored to uplift that legacy. Um, and thank you, know, you. I, and I, let me let me thank you for that because we were struggling together. But you know what? It was it was a right struggle, and um, and here we are. We remember then, and your mother will tell you you could not even utter the noun, the, the proper noun, Palestinian, and we had to fight for that. And yeah. now we're watching hundreds of thousands of people march in Washington, D.C., supporting Palestinians. So we've come a long way, but we still have a very, very long way to go. Yes, yes. And, and there are many who were at the forefront long before um, Palestine became what is now what many young people in Generation Z call the litmus test um, for, for social justice and for social change. Um, and, and actually, I, I would love to speak on that more, but uh, answer your question. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I think what many legal experts and and I have I do have to clarify. Currently, I am a mother of a two-year-old, and I am also eight months pregnant. Oh my! And Hibba's piece brought to words that which so many of us have been struggling with. So I thank you, Hibba. And your name I do not take lightly because I think about Hibba Zakut, the Palestinian artist and mother who was killed with her entire family. I think about Hibba Abunada, the Palestinian poet, young woman, uh, who was writing days before she was targeted and killed. And so um, this is very deep and personal for me as well. Uh, My husband is originally from Gaza. And he has lost at least of what we know of 30 members of his family across at least three generations, potentially four, including children, grandparents, and one 18-month-old child, baby girl, who's a surviving baby to her entire line. Uh, only a number of months know, older than my, younger than my son. And so, Let me yeah. stop you right there. How do you process that? Just help help me with that because I cannot imagine losing one member of my family. I mean, I had a very, very, very close friend die this week, Dexter King, and I'm still reeling from that. But your family, these are your touchstones, Lena. Yes, I mean it's too it's too large to fathom and bear. And there really are not words, and it's too much to process, and we're still in the midst of the genocide, so we're still in survival mode in many ways. Yeah. But I I am fortunately a member of the Chicago Birthworks Collective, a black-centered birthing collective started by Tayo Taylor and Tony Taylor, um, responding to the epidemic of black maternal death in the city of Chicago and in this country. And they have been pillars in supporting me and us to get through this because they too understand what ongoing, slow and rapid genocide looks like. And so I think we simply have to look to generations before us. We can look to black diaspora in the world that still exists today despite intentional genocide that has targeted them, indigenous siblings on these lands, and, and to be honest, our duty in the safety of our homes here is to alchemize our pain into action, that we cannot become paralyzed by it as much as we may feel we are at moments in time, but that we have a duty and a part to play to stop the genocide, to stop the siege on Gaza, to stop USA to Israel, and to reinvest in our communities here, where in Chicago we have the highest death mortality discrepancy uh, in the country from Inglewood to Streetersville, 33-year age gap in terms of the age at which people die. You know, is that not a facet of sociocide or a slow ongoing genocide as well? And so I, I guess my only answer is to say is to do, is to not allow myself to simmer and wade in the um, in the grief too much to lean in and lean out 
to listen to the wisdom of my body, our ancestors, our communities and elders, and to continue to alchemize that pain into action and collective power, as we're seeing every day in cities all across America. Thank you so much, Lena. Uh, Lisa Snowden McRae, Editor-in-Chief of Baltimore Beat. I hear intersectionality here. And when I hear Lena and when I hear Heba, I hear, I just, I hear the cries of Trayvon Martin's mom. You know, I hear Mamie Till Mobley. I, I hear, I hear, I hear uh, the cries of the mother and beloved. I just, I hear, just, I hear the indigenous mother here. I hear, I hear, I hear. Um, talk to me. Where is there intersectionality and, and what can we all do to come together to acknowledge the pain of everybody else and to uh, to understand that we, we have an obligation to end genocide everywhere? Yeah. My in, my introduction to the struggle of Palestinian folks is through Baltimore. It's through writing about policing in Baltimore and learning about how Baltimore City Police, like many other departments across the United States, train with Israeli police. So that was my introduction. That was that was kind of what I've known for for a while now. And after October seventh. I just began seeing babies all over my timeline. And so that just deepened what I already knew. And I think that I appreciate you. I appreciate the other women on this panel who have talked about that intersectionality. I'm sitting here right now in my bedroom um, with two two of my kids getting ready to, to leave in the morning. I have a um, 15-year-old and a 14-year-old. And... Outside of, you know, the the obligation as a journalist, the facts that I know, like those babies, that's just the thing that I'm just like, that I think links all of us. Like, I'm so glad in this piece, um, she talks about the, the feeling of having a baby developing inside of you. Like, it's not an easy process at all. Like, it's not... It's not like you're just floating on a cloud for, for 40 weeks or whatever. Like, it's... Parenting and motherhood is grueling work, like it's loving work, but it's also hard. It doesn't end after they get here. Like I've, I've spent a lot of my time saying the same thing over and over and over. And this is all of what goes into making a person, and this is what knits you to this other person. And and so it's just like I think that I'm seeing people in Baltimore, people all over, being compelled by that that mother, that love instinct. Hmm. Hmm. Stephanie Fox, what do we do? I mean, where do, where do we go from here? Because we hear Israeli officials talking about describing Palestinians as human animals, and and you know, to be fair, sadly, as as awful as the languaging is, as genocidal as it is, it's not unique. Sadly, um, there's such contempt that you see for human life, for human beings. I just see a broader, deeper problem. But you tell me, what does parenthood and genocide mean to you? Well, thank you first just so much for having me. I feel 
just unbelievably be honored to be um, in in the company of this panel and um, Lena and just I just want to express just my whole heart of uh, pain and solidarity with you for sharing about your the losses in your family um, in particular. Um, I mean, that's the question before us, right? Is what, what does this mean and what do we do? And I, I, I feel very similarly to the other, other women on the panel and, and at, to your introduction as well that, you know, I come to this work you know, from a deep personal place as a Jewish person in just utter horror and outrage at the manipulation and weaponization of the history of trauma of my own family and and people. Um, and also as a person here, of course, in the U.S., where we are not just watching the genocide, but, you know, our government is a 100% full partner in it. You know, just, mm-hmm. this is not just Israel's genocide. It is a U.S. and Israel genocide against of Palestinians. And, um, and feel that responsibility uh, so acutely. Um, but I will say that for me, at a core level, I think I relate to it mostly in these last 110 or 11 days as also as a mother. You know, um, mm-hmm. there's no... Uh, I have a five-year-old. Um, I'm on the West Coast, so I'm I'm out it, out in my driveway, so I don't wake him. You know, oh, we all heart. we. I just I just was, you know, but that's the feeling, right? You go you go stand outside of the driveway to have the conversations you need to have, but you make sure your kid is asleep and safe inside, you know, and that is the most human thing in the world, and to feel the way that. Um, this has torn the fabric of humanity to see um, a people subjected to this in front of our eyes on um, day after second after second, you know, and, um, you know, I have a hard time, you know, even dropping my kid off at school because, you know, Israel's killing about a hundred children a day. And I, I think that in like, you know, between Monday and Friday, when I've dropped him off on Monday and I pick him up on Friday, the entire student population of his school would have been annihilated, you know, and I just, I don't, I can't see groups of children without thinking about the number of Palestinian children, you know, um, and it, and like you said, uh, I think it's so important to see too, it's everybody is somebody's child, you know, um, um, and so for us, I think that, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm just thinking about, um, you know, James Baldwin's, critical quote of, you know, about the children are always ours, every single one of them, and, and, you know, beginning to suspect that anybody who can't see that is incapable of morality, and I've just thought about that quote pretty much every day of these many months, and I think for us sitting here, where our um, tax dollars are the literal arms and fuel for this genocide. We must um, do literally everything in our power because, you know, there's, you know, South Africa and we have many comrades there. I, I spent a month there this summer working with folks and, and understand that they see their role as bringing forward this, you know, moral, the, the moral authority they have to try to, to insist on accountability from the world's highest court and from us here in the U.S., what we have to do to try to absolutely stop every business as usual until our own government um, 
at the very least, withdraws its full partnership and complicity in this moment. And we are complicit. We are complicit. And we need to think about that, everybody. Put your child's face in the arms of that Palestinian father and mother. Put your face there. Think about that. And we're responsible because we know better. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a few minutes. Call us at 773-763-9278. But I'm glad you're listening, and I want you to listen in here. Let's talk about parenthood and genocide. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. It is Friday, January 26, 2024. We're talking about parenthood and genocide. We're awaiting uh, the, uh, the preliminary verdict from the International Criminal Court. In uh, in the Hague, what will they say about South African char- South Africa charging Israel with genocide? Will there be a call to uh, to have a ceasefire? At the very least, a ceasefire. Call us at seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. Yes, you hear a baby in the background because I have a panel full of moms, and I'm glad to let that baby go on and say what they want to say. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> He's got and, a lot to say. And, <laughs> that's right. If babies don't make noise, there's a problem, and that's the end of that. Let that baby go on, and don't 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 shush them. <laughs> Let them come on and say what they need to say. I'm in another um, room. He's just a loud babbler. <laughs> oh, girl, open the door. Peter Jackson is WCPT820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, at AM950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. I'm never ashamed of a baby. Let the babies come. <laughs> they need to be in on the conversation because that is how they're going to learn. You don't, you don't, we can't box our children out of these movements. We have to raise them in them because they're going to have to pick up the baton from us anyway. Call us at 773-763-9278. 773-763-WCPT as we talk about parenthood and genocide. Indeed, Oh, my goodness. So many. I have seen the number, the figures as high as 28,000. Thousands have been killed. Officially, it's more than 25,000. But it's tens of thousands more who've been injured, uh, who are dealing with near-fatal injuries. What are we going to talk about that? And when are we going to talk about it? And what about parenthood and genocide? What about these mothers who've had to give birth on the floors of hospitals that have no equipment? What about women who have to have a C-section without any anesthesia? What about women and mothers and fathers who are watching their children in the neonatal units die because the electricity is gone, because they don't have enough food, because they don't have the proper nutrients? That's what's happening over there. What about our Palestinian and Arab brothers and sisters who are here who come to you, and they might have a little faraway look in their eyes, but their whole families have been wiped out. When you hear Rashida Tlaib, her grandmama lives over in Gaza. So this is not an academic discussion for these people. It's not. So let's talk about this at 773-763-9278. Let's get some of the headlines out the way so that we can get on with the rest of the show. Alabama carried out the world's first known 
execution with nitrogen gas. Kenneth Eugene Smith, convicted in a 1988 contract killing, was put to death last night despite concerns that the untested method could cause enormous pain. Donald Trump briefly testified in his civil defamation trial yesterday, visibly angry. He took the witness stand in a New York federal court, spoke for a few minutes, then walked out in a huff. The U.N.'s top court is set to rule on ordering Israel to halt fighting in Gaza. Will that happen today? That is part of what the conversation is about today on the Santita Jackson Show. I want you to call me at 773-763-9278. And this report, we're going to talk about this next week. Half of American renters spend more than 30% of their income on housing, according to this new study. That's a key benchmark for affordability. Rent remains the nation's main driver of inflation. Other causes of rising prices have improved, but rent is still taking up a bigger share of people's budgets. So let's talk, everybody, today in Chicago. We're going to have, it's going to be a beautiful day, nice and warm, 36 degrees above zero, everybody, above zero. But we're going to have rain and snow, a nice mixture of that in Minneapolis, St. Paul. We're going to have 39 degrees. It's going to be cloudy. The NFL championships, the AFC, the NFC, who's going to be the champ? We'll know on Monday in the NBA. The Lakers, 141. The Bulls, 132. The Timberwolves, 96, the Nets, 94 in the NHL. The Oilers rolled over the Chicago team, 3 to nothing, and the Predators were triumphant over the Wild, 3 to 2. And those are some of the headlines on the Santita Jackson Show. We have a tremendous panel of moms, and that's right. We're hearing the babies in the background and all of that. We're all trying to prevent the tears from coming because when the tears come, they just don't stop. Stephanie Fox, Executive Director, Jewish Voice for Peace, and a teen, attorney, Lena O'Day, uh, executive director of the First Legal Defense Aid and founding member of Ella's Daughters, the Palestinian Feminist Collective, Lisa Snowden McCray, editor-in-chief of Baltimore Beat, we urge you to support that outlet. We need to support independent media. She's Her work has appeared in Essence, The Washington Post, Baltimore Magazine, and on and on. But let us start with you, Heather Goyed, Associate Professor of Sociology from CUNY, Hunter College in New York, of course, author of Refuge, you're working on another book, The Cost of Borders. But parenthood and genocide, you're a new mom. What what prompted you to write this? I mean, and I mean, we should get it in, in these times, everybody. I promise you, it is a profoundly moving piece. What prompted you to write this? Thank you so much. Um, you know, it's conversations. I'm, I'm Arab, um, talking to other Arab mothers, talking to other Arab parents. Um, you know, I'm new to motherhood. So I, I'm not new to Palestine or to, to the injustice that Palestinians are suffering. You know, I'm Egyptian. My parents sheltered from Israeli bombs. Um, you know, my, my, my grandfather was uh, a physician in the military when, um, you know, in 1957, 1973. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not new to this. You know, we're born in the struggle. We're born recognizing Palestinians as our siblings and born recognizing, you know, the injustice that, 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 that they experience. But I felt myself feeling this, and, and, and it wasn't just the extent of the violence, because the extent of the violence is really, you know, is really something. It's, a, it's an escalation, you know, that, that maybe we haven't seen since, since 1948 um, and since, you know, the, the period of the Nakba. But it's, it's, it, it, I just felt with every image of parents I felt destroyed. You know, I couldn't put my child to sleep 
without sobbing. I couldn't swaddle him without thinking of those babies outside the NICU. Um, I can't watch him play without thinking about, you know, those those mothers um, who, who, who no longer have their babies and my milk would let down. I would think both about, you know, what people who are stressed um, you know, mothers who are stressed, whether their milk was coming in, I would also think about mothers whose milk lets down for a baby that's been taken from her, you know, um, and, and, and it's very, the thing about motherhood, um, and I think, you know, Lisa brought this up in the first segment, the thing about motherhood is that it is very embodied, it's very physical, it's very much about, you know, baby moving inside you. Birth is a very physical process. Feeding a baby is a very physical process, um, regardless of how you feed them. And and I think I think that experience. I don't think that it. I don't. I don't think it changed my empathy. I think it just made me. It gave me an embodied experience of what parenthood would be, and it made me feel much more connected um, to parents. And you know, my journey to motherhood, like a lot of women's journeys, um, was not easy, right? I, I I'm I'm 36. You know, I went through a lot of. I had a bunch of miscarriages. I have friends who go through IVF. Um, so I, 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 I saw a, a statistic that said miscarriages were up 300% in Gaza right now, 300%. And for anybody who's had a miscarriage who's listening, you know, it completely changes your relationship with your body. It alters your sense of the future. It's an incredibly, incredibly painful thing. And, you know, thinking about it happening in a genocide, thinking about this happening while their people are being killed. I just, you know, Palestine is a, it's a feminist issue. It's a reproductive issue. It's a human issue. Um, and I, you know, and that's, that's what prompted me to write. I had to, I had to put all these, all these feelings, you know, as jumbled as they are into, into words. And to be honest with you, it took me weeks to write this, right? It took me, you know, a little over a month to be able to write this from when I told Ari that I was going to write it to when it was written. And Ari uh, Blumkatz, who's a, who's a, a tremendous friend, um, because he waited for me. Um, I think if I was working with any other editor, um, this piece would not have been published because I couldn't write it, you know, and I'm a writer, right? I couldn't write it. Um, and, and it just took its time until it got written. Um, and I think that, you know, that the, that the reason is because it is so visceral. Um, this experience has been so visceral, and that's what prompted this piece. Well, you know, we're going to have Ari Gloomcats on at the bottom of the hour, and I think that we have to, number one, he's responsible for this segment. And I know, I've only known him a short while, but I know him to be a man of tremendous empathy. Oh, that could, it could almost make me cry. Um, hmm. Of tremendous <laughs> empathy, because he wanted your stories to be told. And I don't mind crying, because... I think this is horrible. You know, I think Lena of those Palestinian children when Reverend was running, who ran out in the middle of the street after he spoke in 1984 and they were holding up his picture because he dared to identify them by name. And I just think of all of these families who have been wiped out. And I think of Bernice King today, and I saw her tears as she had to say goodbye to yet another sibling. You know, and I think of the trauma of that family. People don't know what they went through April 4th, 1968. They don't know. They don't know just how much pain that family's had to endure. And it just, it broke my heart. And I appreciate the fact that Ari gave you the time that he knew that you were not just writing a story. This was was autobiographical, Papa. Yeah, I know, and I I didn't know. The wrenching process. Yeah, I didn't know it was going to be, is the thing. 
I didn't know it was going to be so wrenching. I mean, I knew that I, w- I knew I was in pain, but I thought I knew that I could write it. And I, and I, I and you know, the, the fact that we cannot passively watch this, I cannot write about, I cannot do my job, right? Which my job is, big part of my job is writing. I cannot even do my job um, in talking about what these people are enduring. Right. And so we, we are we are struggling to passively consider what these people are going through and, 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 and to write about it. And so imagine going through it, you know, and I that's what I couldn't reconcile. I just felt every time I wrote, every time I put a piece, you know, every time I put ink to paper, it just wasn't sufficient. And I knew it could never be sufficient. And when I let that go, when it became more autobiographical and it became more about me, which I knew I could write about me seeing um, is, is, is when I was able to write it. Because in the beginning, I, I didn't want to censor myself. You know, these are people going through a genocide. Mm-hmm. But I recognized mm-hmm. that, you know, I think, I think that we, because this is such a dehumanizing process, because of all the history, I felt, you know, in the end, that we, I needed to relate to other parents on the parenthood. Um, and that's what I could do, right? Which is a, which is a limited thing, right? <laughs> that's what I could do. Um, and so that's sort of why the piece looks the way it does. Hmm. Lena, when you when we look at this at this genocide, what are we missing here in the in the general American conversation? Because you know, at first we only heard well, and we even now we only talk about the hostages, and and, and we should talk about the hostages. Mm-hmm. They need to be returned mm-hmm. to their families. I mean, and you know, they have said, look. Prime Minister, you need to do whatever you need to do. Have a ceasefire. End this. I want my family home. Because they feel it. Right? I mean, what they're dealing with, no water, no electricity, no medicines. They're living as Gazans now. I mean, it's it's hitting these Israeli families just a little bit differently. So, I mean, so, Mm -hmm. Lena, I mean, where do we go from here? I mean, I think the the critical missing piece... um, you know, especially on the case of Palestine and, and and Gaza more specifically, but I think generally in the broader American media and consciousness is to understand that gendered, uh, familial, sexual violence are central to settler colonialism, to mm-hmm. apartheid, and to genocide. And so similar to what Hiba earlier named at the first segment of the founding of this country, as well as the founding of the state of Israel, as well as uh, the colonial period and apartheid South Africa, Canada and beyond, these systems are inextricably linked and rely on global white supremacy, patriarchy and colonialism. And so the dehumanization of a people to normalize and justify are the red flag alarms that genocide experts recognize and name that prime and condition people to normalize the killing, the mass killing of a people, of children, of mothers, of fathers, of young men, and beyond. And so I think that piece right there, the the subconscious and explicitly unconscious racism that exists to normalize and justify the killing of at least 25,000 people, UNICEF has called this a war on children. Mm. And 
you know, it is no mistake that South Africa is who brought this case forward to the ICJ because they so intimately understand it. I remember I had the honor with an old friend and comrade of my father's, Prexy Nesbitt, to be in South Africa and meet uh, Madiba Nelson Mandela and Grasa Michelle, who in her own right mm. is a great leader and is also the widow of Samora Michelle, who was assassinated mm. by the apartheid regime. And he said, I gave him a rosary made out of olive pits from my cousin in Palestine and a letter. And he said, the health of the health of a society, we know based on how it treats its children. And so we have been encountering since at least 1948 an ongoing genocide in which children are often removed from their homes systematically in the middle of the night and detained without charge through administrative detention. We see them being arrested or killed and charged in military courts where 99% of cases people are found guilty which is often called the kangaroo court because it's a colonial court. And while it may not be as explicit or extreme here uh, on this land where we stand, there are many parallels. And in many ways, the global export of white supremacy from the United States, what Dr. Reverend Otis Moss calls the residue of empire, very much exists and is embodied by what we're seeing in Gaza and in all of Palestine and beyond through the settler colonial state of Israel. And so for me, the missing piece is, is how do we have the righteous anger and rage that Hibba so eloquently puts to words that many of us struggled with in her piece about every single child, whether it's Tamir Rice or a child being held in youth detention for simply being born in the quote-unquote wrong neighborhood, which is very political here in Chicago and beyond, uh, or if it's my, my son's cousin who is left without a living first, second, or third degree relation in her line. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that's the, the missing piece until we move like a society Santita, you said something in an interview I remember so clearly during the peak of COVID. And my grandmother transitioned in that time. And I don't think it's a mistake that just before my son was brought to this world, my grandmother transitioned. She helped raise me and, and rooted me in a lot of the values I uphold today. And you said, are we an economy or are we a society? Do we care about people, human life? Where do we invest and prioritize uh, ourselves as a people? And so, I, as my mother says, we watch, they live it. We have a duty. We have a duty to alchemize that grief and that pain and what we witness and bear witness to into action and into transformative change and justice for all to have a ceasefire, to end the blockade on Gaza, to end the occupation, and to end U.S. aid to Israel, and reinvest that in our homes, in our communities, in our schools, in our parks, in our hospitals, 
here and beyond? Well, you know, I think that is all of your insights are brilliant. And we need to talk about how we can move toward the beloved community that Dr. King sought to build. Because that's really what we're talking about here. The wealthiest nation in, in the world, the United States, has the poorest health outcomes. There's something, but we're also the number one killer in the world. There's a connection there. And we need to make it, understand it, disconnect that, and reconnect to something else. We have a nation of 330 to 350 million people. We don't have one million hospital beds. If America wanted to be a light unto the world for health care, we could do that. But we're not. We deploy our brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and partners and loved ones all over the world to kill. And then when they return with moral injury, we give them a dog and tell them to go on. We need to talk about that, everybody. How do we move into the creation of this beloved community that all of the great prophets that our Savior said that we could have? Stephanie Fox, when we get back on the other side, I want you to talk about that. Lisa, I want you to grade the media, Lisa Snowden McGray, because they have shaped our perceptions. When you when we get back on the other side, I want you to do that. Oh, I know you can, Miss Baltimore Beat. Everybody, I want you to, to subscribe. Oh, yeah. Grade the media. Ari Wombcast will be with us, too, um, as we await uh, really a decision from the International Court of Justice. Will they give justice to the Palestinians, or will Palestinians have to wait another day? They're going to make a statement one way or the other, and that's all right. That's all right. We're here for it. We just have to keep on struggling. Remember, the struggle continues, and victory is certain, as long as you continue with the struggle. Back with more of Santita Jackson's show and this magnificent panel of mamas. <laughs> Back in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota, In These Times magazine. Go to InTheseTimes.com and take a look at this article. Parenthood, on parenthood and genocide, it is something that you need to read. It's something that you need to take in. I have a go I, I, I just want to thank you for digging down deep and, um, and writing this. I know it was not an easy thing to do. And Ari Blumkatz, thank you for being so patient as the editor. As she conveyed to us that you said, look, um, I'm going to give you time, and I'm going to wait for you to write this because I think you need to write it. We're going to hear that story in a hot second. We have got attorney Lena O'Day, and this is a wonderful reunion of sorts since her mother was my father's delegate back in the day. That's right. We've been working together a long time. And, of course, Stephanie Fox, executive director of this brave group, Jewish Voice for Peace. But I have to watch you, Stephanie, because you all do disrupt a whole lot. 
<laughs> turn out the train station in New York. So I don't know. I don't know. Look, I've been surveilled all my life. I don't need any more Stephanie. And then Lisa <laughs> Snowden McRae, editor in chief and co-founder of Baltimore Beat. I wanted you before we before we uh, speak with the rest of the panel, Lisa. Why? How would you grade the media? I mean, because we've seen uh, the media be forced to tell more of the Palestinian story. They don't tell enough. But talk to me. Tell me about your perception of how this story has been shaped and and given to the American people. It's interesting because, again, it's another example of intersection. Um, I'm seeing folks in Baltimore. You know, Baltimore, when we do get attention, it's not always the best attention. And one of the biggest spotlights we had on us was after death. So there's a lot of conversation in Baltimore City about police and the way that they police a majority black city. And so I've just been seeing a lot of parallels between the way that the mainstream media writes about police and how they write about what Israel is doing to Palestinians. So, again, you kind of mentioned it. So, like, when an Israeli person dies, they die. Uh, they are, you know, they're, if, But when a Palestinian person dies, they're just, like, magically killed by some vague force. And for me, I'm just like, I've been yelling about this a long time because I'm like, I paid my money. I went to grad, I went to journalism school and they taught us you use active voice. You use the least amount of words as possible to be as clear as possible. But when you're talking about policing or when you're talking about this conflict, all of a sudden, all the things that we were that were hammered into us. All of a sudden, I see the New York Times, allegedly the best journalist on the planet, writing these convoluted, long headlines that don't make any sense. And lies, right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean thank you, Max Blumenthal. Thank you, Great Zone. <laughs> I mean, you no, know, really, seriously, really, the lies that have been disseminated. It's stunning, Lisa. And it shapes how we, it shapes public opinion. I mean, what, what would you advise the consumers of the news to do? I mean, where do we go? I mean, how do we get the real story? I'm sorry, that me? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, I think that they, we've got to find places like mine. I think that there are more, I was actually just talking about this yesterday. We are in a space right now where there's more places like in these times. There's more places like the Real News Network, which is based here in Baltimore also. There are places in Chicago that are a lot of times founded by people of color. And their, their, their intention is to rewrite the narrative, to provide the gaps in what we get in mainstream coverage. Because the other thing that's tied to this is how white our mainstream media core is. Um, so Palestinian voices, Israeli voices, are not even in these newsrooms to have these conversations. So in the spaces that I'm in, as a person who runs a nonprofit news outlet, I'm seeing black people, brown people, indigenous people, queer people saying, I'm just going to start my own thing. And I think that when, when we start paying more attention to those and supporting those with our eyes and our clicks and our money, that's when we'll start getting a more well-rounded view of what's actually happening in the world. Stephanie Fox, we don't hear enough of we. Uh, we hear mention of Jewish Voice for Peace, but I don't think people really understand your mission. What is it? 
So we are a, a grassroots organization of um, of Jews here in the U.S. Uh, that are we're, we're the largest. Um, progressive Jewish anti-Zionist organization in the world. Um, and we work together with, um, you know, like in communities all across this country, um, seeking to, of course, end Israeli occupation and apartheid and colonization, and also be just building the world of justice, freedom, safety, and dignity from the U.S. to Palestine that we all deserve. Um, and we do that work, you know, in an extension of legacies of, of Jewish freedom fighters for millennia and, um, and really refuse to the, the very false and very dangerous conflation of Jewishness and Judaism with Zionism. So where do you want to, if you could be, what is missing from, what is missing from the conversation? You think? I mean, aside from Jewish voice for peace, I mean, you are missing from the corporate conversation. What is missing from the conversation? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I see you protesting. I see you shutting down, um, what is it, uh, Penn Station in New York. Oh, my gosh, what a beautiful sight that was to see. And bridges and, and, and really your activity um, is just it's stunning. That having been said, what do you think that there's a misperception? Do you think there's a misunderstanding of 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 who you are by the general public, or do they just not know enough about you? Because you know, everybody I think thinks that, that all Jewish people think the same way about this, and this is not true. That's right. I think that you know there is a. Um, as long as there has been Zionism, there has been Jewish descent to it. Uh, um, and we, you know, like I said, root ourselves in those histories as we, you know, we've been around for almost 30 years and, and fighting all along and, of course, are bringing literally everything and every fiber of our beings, like everyone on this call and probably everyone listening to and these historic atrocities and the root causes of of what has led us here. Um, but I think that, you know, there is a calculated, um, calculated attempt, uh, like, like Lisa was just describing for us on the part of the mainstream media, not to tell the real story. Um, and as Lena was describing for us to, to start this entire conversation in October, which all of us understand, um, it absolutely does not. We're talking about 75 years of colonization and oppression and apartheid and occupation. Um, and so, you know, I think that in the in the mainstream conversation, there's a very calculated attempt to erase and invisibilize Palestinian narratives, humanity, um, you know, voice. And I think there's almost just a corollary that then anti-Zionist Jewish voices are going to be attempted to be invisibilized in the conversation, too. Um, so... So we see that, you know, we have a responsibility and a kind of mandate to show up um, in the movement and to bring everything in this moment and to be, of course, in protest and, of course, demanding um, demanding a change from our government and also sort of being the counter narrative. We, we are a massive, you know, we've, we, we have 85 chapters across the country. We have, you know, like... Two million followers on social media. We have seven hundred and fifty thousand people who are supporters and members, um, and 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 we have you know just so so many Jewish people understand the same way every people all people of conscience cannot look at this as 
parents as human beings and not understand the simple morality of where one has to be in this moment in history. And so we, you know, we are very proud to be a political home for the many, many tens of thousands of Jews who feel that way. Well, the U.N. court, everyone, breaking news, has told Israel to do more to prevent killing and harming of Gazans, but it does not order a ceasefire. Now, there, according to the Washington Post, they're saying that this order is a blow to Israel, which has rejected South Africa's call for emergency measures. The decision does not address the larger question of whether Israel is committing genocide, which could take years. Heba, what's your reaction? You know, I I want to follow the lead of Gazans that I'm 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 you know I I'm I'm active on Twitter and I and I see a lot of reactions that are in real time and you know unfortunately you know to your earlier point um, to Lisa right because the media has been so problematic in coverage you know social media has become a primary site where we can actually understand what people think um, what people feel what people are going through um, and so I've seen you know both kinds of reactions um, I've seen uh, people from Gaza celebrate uh, feel like okay at least some measure has been taken at least you know we find that you know the, the charge of the genocide has some credibility is plausible um, even if they didn't go as far as ceasefire um, whereas others uh, feel like, you know, it, it's, it's high time and ceasefire is such a low bar. Um, and, and it was time for the court to say, now, I'm not a lawyer um, and I'm not versed in international law. Maybe the lawyers on here can can chime in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems from the lawyers, from lawyers who are commenting that there wasn't a, a, an expectation that ceasefire could have been said, but there wasn't a clear expectation for it. Um, but, you know, what I've been telling people is, Let's you know it's very easy. We have we have a knee jerk tendency to crit- to critique, right? But what we've seen is a desert of justice. We've seen no one standing up and saying, um, you know, on the international arena in international law, um, you know, no real action. Um, and this is the first of its kind. So you know, I don't know how to assess if, if they didn't go far enough. Is that something that you know we can dismiss the whole thing, or is there something to celebrate here, even if it's not one hundred percent? what we wanted. Attorney Lena, your thought to be no ceasefire, they said that could take years. Yeah, I I think, um, you know, again, this is not my area of expertise as well, but I think many um, legal experts, one, uh, I want to kind of root and frame as we do here in in the U.S. in terms of our our legal system or our criminal injustice system at times as well, um, is that, you know, international law, too, was born out of systems of colonialism. And so while we do look to these measures um, and these these systems and rulings to have some sort of rule of law in the world so that we don't have, you know, this quote-unquote wild, wild west situation where people can kill others in mass, as we're seeing at this time, at the same time, we too know that our ultimate liberation is not rooted in, you know, court rulings, but mm-hmm. are critical and important tools for for change. And so what many legal experts, you know, have said is that they did not necessarily anticipate that the ICJ would rule um, uh, for a ceasefire at this time. This case is going to go on for years. Um, and, uh, and, and the ICJ had an option to respond 
in a number of ways. Um, one of the key points that's been noted is that uh, in Israel's defense, they did not really dispute whether or not genocide was happening, but focused their dis- defense on procedural claims, whether or not South Africa had a right or jurisdiction to bring this claim forward. And what I understand and know, because I have not had the chance to look at it, but the little bit that I've been able to see is that um, the court did rule that South Africa in South Africa indeed did have jurisdiction in bringing this forward. So, you know, that's a, that's a technical procedural um, ground, but, but that's a positive one. Um, and, and either way, um, we know that if there were to be a ruling to um, put a stop to uh, the killing, it would be uh, a temporary ruling and that the ultimate ceasefire ruling will take um, uh, years to, to come into play. What I'm understanding in terms of what has been ruled is that uh, there has not been um, uh, a ruling to halt the, ge- the, the genocide, uh, but there has been a ruling to uh, minimize the level of killing and harm that is happening. And so I think in the broader global arena, as you, as you have mentioned in the past, Santita, um, either way, this is, a, I think, a triumph for, um, for the wretched of the earth, uh, as Benon said, meaning that we were able mm-hmm. to, at, at, at minimum, come to the global stage and arena and countries such as South Africa that are emerging as leadership on the global stage rooted in a history and understanding both deeply and intimately in their own history, but also in their deep commitment and solidarity uh, to the Palestinian cause and people. It was the ANC that helped bring along folks like Paul Robeson and others to the Palestinian cause who initially did not understand or know that it was one that was deeply tied and rooted to their liberation. And so um, in many ways, I still think that it is a success that we are where we are in terms of uh, uh, the, the world clearly taking a position and stand to end and stop the genocide. It is disheartening that we still have to navigate the political arena um, and that it has not been explicitly um, halted or stopped, neither by the ICJ temporary ruling or by um, those who hold power and continue to aid um, uh, unconditionally uh, Israel with its its bombs and, and general aid. But that, uh, you know, the struggle continues. And, and um, I think we will, I think this is showing a, a tide that is shifting globally and generationally. You are Boomcats, executive editor of In These Times. Heba was telling us that this was a very difficult story for her to write. Now, as an editor, you could have pushed her to write it. Um, wouldn't have been wise, but you could have done that. And you could have also given the story to someone else. Why did you feel that this story was something that she needed to write at this time, and why were you willing to give her time to process it and write it? Well, um, good morning, Cynthia, and um, you know, good morning, everybody else. Um, thanks so much for being on today, and just really honored to be on with everyone. You know, I, it's really kind, you know what, I was saying here, um, 
Uh, and, you know, sometimes articles need time to breathe, need time to be written. Um, but, you know, the thing about Heather here is something that we're seeing in a lot of corners right now of storytelling, particularly storytelling by Palestinian Arab and Muslim um, folks right now, which is a absolutely incredible amount of courage um, and absolutely incredible amount of force of will to be able to write these pieces, to be able to tell these stories. We've seen, you know, well over 100 journalists die in Gaza right now because they're so dedicated to telling stories, because they're so dedicated to showing the world the genocide. And I think one of the big takeaways I have throughout this whole process is October 7th is just the absolute amount of courage that it takes to tell these stories. And this is something that we've seen from Palestinians since the Nakba, is the courage that it takes to tell these stories as the Israeli military is literally assassinating journalists, is literally shooting journalists from afar, is literally targeting journalists um, and storytellers um, all over Palestine, all over the West Bank, all over Gaza, all over, you know, 48 territory. And, you know, when we talk about the Israeli censor, when we talk about um, all of these efforts, when we talk about the New York Times, when we talk about the Los Angeles Times uh, censoring all of the journalists who signed the uh, Gaza letter, when we talk about, you know, the New York Times that sent out this, you know, very threatening letter to freelancers to not engage in you know, any particular activities and things like that. What we're seeing is a assault on storytelling. We're seeing an assault on truth-telling about the genocide right now, about the conditions of the occupation, about the conditions of apartheid, and about the conditions of the humanitarian disaster. And we are existing during a time in which it is becoming increasingly, you know, impossible for the Israeli government, for the Israeli Hasbro machine to obfuscate and hide their crimes. And, you know, that's one of the things that we're seeing at the uh, ICJ right now is that, you know, when South Africa brought this case, you know, if you haven't already done it, and I'd, I'd recommend to readers to actually read the 80-page complaints um, that South Africa submitted here, because there is so clear evidence of all of this across the board. And, you know, in so many ways, it's kind of wild to think about because the Israeli government, when you have, you know, the defense minister, when you have Ben Gavir, when you have Ben Yahoo, making all of these explicit statements about genocide, about committing genocide, and then we turn around and are like, they're committing genocide? And they're literally telling us they're committing genocide. And so in some ways, I find, you know, the ICJ process you know, in a way, like, fairly insulting. And, you know, it's very important that this process is happening, but it's telling us all to sort of debate whether or not genocide is happening when it's happening in front of our faces. And it's because of journalists like Heba, it's because of so many journalists um, uh, uh, right now that are dedicated to truth-telling that we know that even, you know, despite, you know, this institution's rulings or anything like that, despite the New York Times obfuscating all of this, you know, we know people of conscience know right now that there's no way to 
to deny what is happening in, in Palestine. And, you know, the real question for me right now is what are we going to do about it and how are we going to mm-hmm. stop this? Um, and, you know, even when the ICJ has ruled in the past, you know, about some of this stuff, countries haven't stopped. And I think, you know, most folks thought that if the ICJ had ruled even more forcefully here, that there wouldn't really be a question whether or not Israel was going to stop or it was going to continue on right now. Um, so that's the question for, for me right now is, is, is how, how does this stop and how can we organize as a global populace um, in support of Palestinian liberation to stop this? You know, I'm going to get closing thoughts from everybody. Time has passed so quickly. Um, let me start with you, Stephanie. In a little under a minute, if you don't mind, uh, what's our takeaway today? Parenthood and genocide and, and where we go from here. Stephanie Fox, Jewish Voice for Peace. I think our takeaway is that, you know, there's no such thing as other people's children and that everything um, in us right now at a basic level demands that we bring our whole hearts, minds, everything we have from every sphere of influence in our lives to to demand an immediate and permanent ceasefire and beyond that freedom for Palestinians. Um, And from the U.S., we have a specific role to play in ending the impunity and the constant funding and fueling and abetting of this genocide that is coming here from the belly of the beast. So let's let's rise up. Hmm. Um, Lisa Snowden McRae. What I'm thinking about right now is that work is slow and steady and also that all of us that are doing this work need to make sure that we're giving ourselves grace because we are feeling this as we're working through it. Those are just my takeaways from this conversation. Just knowing that, you know, the, it takes a long time to get to where we need to be. And just thinking about the care that went into this piece, the care that, like, and we do a similar kind of model with the beat, like we don't rush our news and how important that is because we're also carrying the pain of what we're observing and writing about. And that's just what I'm going to carry from the conversation for, I think, probably a long time. Mm, I like that. Atina, I see they're turning. Atina, I'm about to completing the name. Lena, <laughs> what's our takeaway today? Yes, uh, I I think what all the previous guests have said, that we each have a part to play, and we each have a duty, and we have a duty to take action. Um, And so how do we alchemize, as I've said before, our bear witness and pain into action? How do we activate every sector from stay-at-home parents to teachers to nurses to tech workers to cultural workers that we all have a part to play to put an end to the genocide, to put an end to the the genocide that is happening in Gaza, but also the apartheid systems that we have here at home and to make those connections and to never forget those connections because our liberation is inextricably bound, but so too is our love, so too are our values, so too is our love of life and joy and abundance. And so I call on everyone to participate today in the We Charge Genocide Day of Action and Hearings that are happening to participate in boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel. Hmm. Heba, the last word belongs to you, everybody. Go to nbstimes.com. Read on parent and genocide. The last 60 seconds are yours, Heba. 
You know, I think that this panel today, having, you know, a group of us, women, uh, mostly women of color, come together and speak has been nourishing and can show what, what radical change can happen when we talk and come together. So I'll leave everybody with, you know, with this as an example of, of the kind of conversation, communication um, that we need to have as the basis for our movement, for our actions uh, moving forward. And thank you so much, Santita, for creating this space. And thank you to my co-panelists for, for joining. This has been um, soul nourishing in a, in, a, in a depleted environment. Well, you know, it is my duty. I'm a steward of the airwaves. I don't own them. And so I thank you for being here today, and I hope that you will know that this is your home. Let's come back and let's heal the world. Let's make this world the place that it's supposed to be, not a better place, but a well place. We need to move toward a just society and a peace-filled world. We can do it. We can do it if we try it. I love you, everybody. God bless you. See you on Keep Up Alive with Reverend Jesse Jackson on Sunday. But in the meantime, have a great, 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 great day. God bless you. And peace in the Middle East and justice. God bless you, everybody.